0: Hey there, welcome to SaaS Inbound podcast. I'm your host, and the Dana, Head of Growth SAS Group, a serial acquirer buying wonderful SaaS businesses to take them to the next level. Here, I chat with inspiring founders and experts to get an insights group on how they made their business a success. And today with me here is Auntie, founder of Ad Search, a lightning fast, effortless, and customizable personalized site search for any website. They joined SaaS Group family last year and we're going to tap into the sale process and post-sale integration, as well as the story of the product and the company. Super excited to have you here.
1: Great to be here, Anna.
0: So uh, let's get to it. You've got uh, a fascinating story with AdSearch. It's been around for over 10 years. And uh, before we go you know, into what happened last year, I want to go back into the inception of the company and a bit into your background as well.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So the start of the ad shirts came from my personal problem. And I think that's always the best way to start a business. Like if you have a challenge with something and you want to fix that, then then there is a good starting point. So 10 years ago, uh, in Finland, we, we have this thing uh, called tax card. So when you get salary, you need to provide a tax card to your employer. So that The tax percentage and some other details are visible in the card Uh, and 10 years ago i was in need of this tax card so i went to the tax authority website here in finland the tax.fi and i used the inside search to search for tax card and there was no results found so basically that was the starting point of the business i was thinking like it doesn't make any sense that this website has a search field if there are no results for the most requested piece of content that the website has. So what happened was that I went to Google. I Googled the same thing and went back to the tax website and found the tax card. And basically what happened ten years ago, but it's still happening today, is that uh, site searches are quite poor in general. And if website owners or businesses use money to get people on their website, and people can find the piece of content they are looking for, and they go to Google, then all the competitor ads and all the other results are on the Google result page. So the business is in risk of losing the potential customer. So basically, that's what we started fixing 10 years ago. The situation on the market is much better today, but still on weekly basis or almost on daily basis, when I go to a website, especially on mobile, and I try to find a piece of content from large website, Using the hamburger menu or or the website navigation, and then using the side search, the results are still super poor. So that's that's how it got started, and that's what we started fixing.
0: Right. So you got a bit Too many expectations from a government-run website. And, (laughs) you know, they're they're no better these days, I guess. Okay, I think I know what you're talking about because I lived in Finland exactly 10, 12 years ago. So I I even remember the website you're talking about. But obviously, you know, websites already had their searches, internal searches implemented. Uh, So how did you... Um, how did you go out there and started saying, you know, my search is better, right? So basically, how did you get your first customer? And since then, how has your customer acquisition strategy changed?
1: Yeah, the evolution has been dramatic. So basically, like the history of ad search or like the pre-historical era was that me and my co-founder and good friend Mikko Nurminen, we were running a website builder business before ad search. And we were serving small and medium sized companies and small organizations like nonprofits and sports clubs and such. And they already had the content discovery problem that they had lots of documentation and different kind of content on the website, but the like the navigation hierarchy and, and the search in general sucked at the time. Uh, and we sold that business in 2013, just before we started ad search. Uh, so because of running the website builder business for quite a long time, I think part of the ad DNA came from that company. And because of the history with the SMBs and small organizations, we also launched ad for small companies, small organizations and, and nonprofits in the beginning. So what it meant was that the product was very like self-service driven. Anyone could try out the product with their own website content. So we would crawl the website and anyone without any technical understanding could install the search on their website as well. Uh, Now, like thinking about now, I think the the initial target group wasn't optimal as small companies are quite price sensitive, so they are not willing to pay much. And also the churn risk is a lot higher than with the bigger customers. Uh, But anyway, we went out with the SMB self-service product, and we started getting customers from the beginning with online advertisement and, and Google Ads. And so what we, what we also saw was that there was clear demand from the bigger companies and more complex cases, including the, the Finnish tax authority that was in contact with us and wanted to fix their search. So, so that, that was clear in the beginning. But the, the like small resources we had for the product development postponed those bigger customers for quite a few years. So so we kept working with the smaller cases and less complex use cases and kept turning down these opportunities to serve bigger customers, maybe a bit too long, but eventually we started implementing more advanced features and open APIs that could be used to implement these more complex search needs for the bigger companies. But that was an evolution from like very, very small websites to large organizations and corporations we are serving today, including some of the biggest companies in the world and biggest organizations in the world. So I think we have so- seen the whole spectrum of company and organization sizes.
0: Yeah. Okay. Fascinating. So finally you can, you can find the tax card <laughs> in Finland. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> That's great. That's it's on you. Wonderful. Uh all right. So since you've been moving from like self-served, uh I guess PLG uh kind of motion up market, uh has it changed your sales process dramatically? Like is there a big sales team right now? And uh yeah, what what are you doing in terms of acquiring those bigger customers?
1: It has Change the process somewhat. We are still or try to be product led driven, meaning that anyone can try out the product, anyone can implement the, the search by themselves. But the main difference is that with the bigger customers, there are so many more stakeholders within the organization. So even if, like, being PLG and giving anyone the opportunity to try out the product, what usually happens is a that like a developer from the customer organization tries out the product and maybe does some kind of like a technical DD that if this this fills the needs. But then the buying decision is made by some business people or product people in some other part of the organization. And to juggle with these different stakeholders and different parts of the buyer organization, uh, we have salespeople, but I wouldn't say that it's a big sales team, but, but we have people helping out the customer to navigate through the purchase process. Uh, but still, anyone can sign up and buy the product by themselves as well.
0: Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. All right. So can you tell me what has been throughout this year's the most unexpected challenge with growing ad search?
1: The most unexpected, I would say that maybe something that is like doesn't make sense unless you think it a bit more is that ad search works for almost anyone. So the target audience is super, super, super big. And if the market size is big, of course, that's a good thing. But that also brings lots of struggles for marketing and for website messages and and basically all the operations that if you try to sell to everybody, then it's actually not good for anyone. It's just like a you know average for everybody, so so kind of like uh, being forced to forget some potential target groups to aim the focus on the most potential ones. So that has been maybe a, a bit of an unexpected struggle. And it's a positive problem because there are so many target groups, but it's still still difficult to select the correct ones.
0: Right, it's a champagne problem, right? It's good yeah. to to have too many, uh, too many customers, so too too much demand for your product. That's wonderful. So, okay, so I think uh, like our main focus for 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 this episode is going to be still the acquisition, right? So, can you walk me through a little bit because? Um, As far as I know, you've been uh, getting out of like the the operational side of the business a little bit for a while. And um, uh, there is a CEO. So at what point did you decide that this is something that you you were going to do? And at what point, um, the you know, you came to a decision that, okay, I'm going to start uh, looking for acquirers? Or have you been maybe building a pool of potential buyers for a long time, because everyone says, you know, relationships matter and you have to keep updating people who could potentially then buy your business for a while. So what's your story?
1: Yeah. Yeah. So it's definitely a like long process instead of like a one time project. Uh, And with us, I think like aiming to exit was clear from the day one. So it was clear for the founders and for the investors and everybody that, that that someday we will sell the company. So that was clear. There was no discussions about if that's, that's the strategy or not. Uh, but of course, you can't aim to exit or it rarely uh, like succeeds. You should aim to successful business and, and growing and profitable business. And then someone will buy it definitely. Uh, and with us, I think the first step towards the exit was like you mentioned that I stepped down from the operational role. I'm entrepreneur by soul, so I was feeling that I I rather uh, kind of like step out from the operational role before the exit. And in 2020, uh, we promoted our COO Helena Rebane to the CEO and I became the chairman of the board at the time. So that was kind of like the first step of of the process, even though that was like three years before the actual exit. Uh, But at that time we started building the organization that would stand on its own feet. So the founders wouldn't be needed, it would be easily sold and and the buyer could build on top of that and and kind of like keep growing the business. Uh, At the same time, we have had all kind of inbound inquiries from potential buyers or investors or partners throughout the years. And I have had like calls with them every now and then and kept the relationships uh, up and I, I think SaaS group was in contact for the first time in maybe twenty twenty one or something like that so so I think it was like two years before the exit. so we had some kind of like a warm uh, intro done and and both of us knew the other party. but the actual exit process started uh, in the beginning of twenty twenty three for real and at the time we we have or had an v c investor on board and there investment fund was expiring or the lifetime was coming to the end. So it was clear that the exit should happen in the near future. And at that that time, uh, the exit market was already also better than a year before when the war started and and the interest rates started to rise. So so in the beginning of 2023, we started to uh, start the process and we actually hired a financial advisor from Finland, where we are headquartered. So they navigated through the process and they ran very efficient process to go through the potential parties or partners and, and SaaS Group was quite clear winner in, in like many ways. It, like the commercial terms were good, but also the, the culture fit and the future of the company and product and customers was excellent.
0: That's wonderful. Thank you. That's, that's really good to hear. Uh, Well, um, just a couple of days ago, uh, I had a podcast with uh, Blake Hutchinson, who's the the CEO of Flippa, right? One of the biggest marketplaces for buying and selling digital assets in the world. And what he was saying, and I found it really, really fascinating. uh, What he said was during the buying process or selling process, Uh, yes, keeping the relationship uh, is crucial, right? And Understanding the the cultural fit and, you know, the price fit and everything is crucial as well. But what buyers are also uh, looking at is um, how the company sustains itself and how uh, everyone works under the pressure of the exit, because exit is stressful, right? It's it's a very unusual situation. Very few founders uh, have had Uh, experience, um, you know, uh, selling multiple businesses, and there's always the first anyway, right? So how was it for you? Like, um, and obviously, you had some, um, some external help, the advisors, and, uh, you know, I know that that we value the time of the founder, and we want to streamline the process. But how was it for you? Did it take a toll on the company that you know something is going on there is due diligence there are a lot of people involved um, yeah how did it go
1: for us it was almost as smooth as it could be like it was very very streamlined and there are multiple reasons for that so one reason is that uh, the exit process was mostly ran by the founders who were not in the operational role anymore so Helena as the CEO could focus on the, daily business. She was involved in the exit also, but still the main focus was in the operational role. And same with the CTO, Janne, uh, who was helping with the the exit, but running the CTO duties at the same time. But I, I was able to spend lots of energy and time for the exit process without interrupting the company operations. So that was a major, major help this time, but also uh, as I mentioned, we had the advisor that helped with lots of communication and uh, kind of like uh, coordinated the question inflow we got from the potential buyers. So so they managed that and, and like what happened was that there was so many like same or similar questions coming from different parties. So they kind of like reduced the message flow a lot to us. Uh, and then maybe the third thing is that this Uh, wasn't the first exit for us so the first exit for me and the co-founder Mikko was in 2013 and uh, in total this was the fifth exit where i've been involved in so i kind of like knew how the process should go and what are the like kind of like risks throughout the process and challenging parts and navigating through them and trying not to interrupt with the business was the main thing i tried to focus and and then it went successfully to the goal
0: This episode is sponsored by Rewardful.com Looking for new ways to find customers for your SaaS business? Consider adding an affiliate program. Rewardful is the easiest affiliate tracking platform to set up, manage, and scale for SaaS companies. Lock your customer acquisition cost and only pay affiliates based on results. Integrate Rewardful with your Stripe or Paddle account and set up your affiliate campaigns in minutes. Building a successful affiliate program can be a little bit intimidating figuring out where to get started. That's where Rewardful has taken what they've observed from their most successful customers' affiliate programs and distilled that into an exclusive online course. The exciting part? Their affiliate marketing course is absolutely free. And by joining the waitlist today, you'll get early access to it as soon as it goes live. Join the waitlist at rewardful.com course rewardful.com slash course and turn your biggest fans into your best marketers. Yeah, I think I think it's a very valid point to, uh, you know, to make sure that business keeps performing even during due diligence, because, um, you know, it is yeah, it is definitely an unusual situation, but it's definitely not, uh, you know, something that uh, founders should be afraid of. And uh, you know, there's so many turbulent um, events. I think on the market these these days that you know the, the resilience that that founders built towards the exit is um, is absolutely amazing. So that would that would definitely help in the process. All right. So uh, let's talk maybe a little bit more about the the due diligence process, right? Because again, this is a bit confusing for uh, for founders. So. What were the steps? What were the the initial kind of um, steps to towards the sale, right? I know that there is an intro call uh, where you you know, present your intent to to actually sell the company, but where did it go from there? What was the first part that was evaluated, and um, yeah, how long did it take for you?
1: Yeah, so after the intro call, we provided some. Financial information about the company and customer base and the growth and plans we had. And based on based on those informations and, and maybe some follow-up calls, uh, we received the offer and then later on a letter of intent to buy the business. So uh, one thing that the that our advisor was was doing extremely well that, was that that many uh, like big risks were mitigated in the letter of intent phase. So we didn't want to postpone difficult discussions to the end of the process when we would maybe have like pressure to sell because we have spent so much time on the process or something like that. So we tried to, you know, discuss all the difficult topics early on. And when we agreed on all those topics, then we we signed the letter of intent and the actual due diligence started. Uh, and it started by receiving tons of information requests from different areas of the business, like technology, law, or legal, financial, HR, product, and so on. Uh, So then for the next weeks, we collected this information that was requested. And and also we received tons of questions uh, through the DD tool about the business or about the content we, we provided, like what this means on this row and this cell, like why this number is Showing th- this and that, and we needed to figure it out. Of course, we couldn't answer to everything from from kind of like from our, our top of the head. So so we need to need to investigate the numbers and understand them by ourselves as well, and and answer why some cohort is behaving like it is. Uh, so after delivering the material, then uh, the buyer side was was going through the material and, and we had like calls with the different DD flow uh, parties. So the buyer was also using some advisors, for example, for financials, they were using a Finnish advisor. So it was quite easy to have the discussions about the Finnish accounting system and and conflict legal, legal things with them here in Finland. Uh, and after those calls or a couple of calls with each DD flow leader, uh, they did some kind of DD reports for the buyer and and then then uh, actually we received some of these DD reports that that kind of like we we saw how how they think about our business or the area of the business they were inspecting and and then we moved forward to the actual share purchase agreement negotiations but as I mentioned we already had the difficult discussions in the letter of intent phase so the share purchase, agreement was very straightforward
0: I think that's very smart like because stalling this and like uh, trying to keep some information out of the discussions uh, in the in the first phases of, of the deal uh, seems like maybe a natural thing to do uh, but um, yeah I talked with with another founder that sold the size group and and uh, they didn't think about it at first they didn't know really how complex the due diligence was so at one point he said they were always stressed about like uh, a skeleton that they forgot about right so like what could be found that we forgot or like we didn't take into account or we didn't talk about at the, at the very beginning uh that could stall the deal or could you know make size group go away and, I mean, a lot of things are negotiable and, um, you know, could, could be worked around. But, yeah, these things obviously uh, take it all on the trust and just the whole relationships because you're in for, you know, a long road. I think that that's a great hack to use, to uh, to to give all the all the hard stuff away at the beginning, okay. And what was uh, maybe again the most unexpected, the most challenging thing of the DD for you?
1: I don't think we had any real surprises or any real challenges. Like internal challenge was that the company was already ten years old, so we had tons of like customer contracts on paper, for example, and and different. Uh, contract templates used throughout the year. So there was lots of legacy and lots of content to gather. So that required lots, lots of work, but it wasn't surprise per se. So we <laughs> knew that that would happen. Uh, maybe one thing like mentally that 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 was challenging for us was that like a couple of years ago there was COVID and then like a year before there was the war starting in Ukraine and the interest rates raising. So there has been these like black swan moments in the past year. So basically, like when the letter of intent or the DD started, we couldn't count on that the, that the deal would go through until the, the papers were actually signed. We were, we were always like worried that something crazy would happen again in the world.
0: Oh, yes, uh, I think like everyone says 2023 has been difficult for the founders. But then I think, oh, my God, 2021, 2022 hasn't been a lot easier, like, if, yeah. if we're looking back. So, <laughs> but yeah, exactly. um yeah, you guys have the greatest resilience out there in, in the business world. All right. So um what would be your best advice to the founders who are planning to exit? Is it you know, is it taking care of the contractual work? Is it taking care of, you know, the data and the documentation being in one place? Is it presenting your skeletons, the, the basically the first um, moment that you think this is the right buyer? Um, what would be your best one?
1: All of those are good advices, uh, but still the best advice is to take care of your business. And I think the worst position you can be is that you are forced to sell. So you should always be able to to go break even or go profitable and walk away from the deal. So you don't want to be in the situation where the runway is ending in a couple of months and you need to sell the company like you have no negotiation power at that point. So so definitely keeping the business in the good phase. You can always, you know, grant to collect the documents and papers. Uh, That's that's not like a deal breaker, but if the business is in good shape, then that's that's not a good thing. So focusing on business, focusing on keeping the threads in your hands, so you can go break-even, you can go profitable and, and just like you know, walk away from the deal.
0: Right, absolutely. And one other thing that uh also is discussed, I mean it's it's a very valid point, right? And it's it's a very valid wish to to want to sell your business for the highest valuation, highest multiple possible, right? So what was in it, in it for you? How did you go about pricing the company? Uh, and again, for example, with uh, with Blake uh, Hutchinson, we decide, we um, discussed the fact that maybe you should, well, you should obviously look at the benchmarks, right? And like what other companies of similar sizes or like similar uh, operations, uh, are being sold for, uh, look at the benchmarks, um, maybe, um, yeah, price your company at the like low, low point of that benchmark, but then be ready to maybe to go down. How did you go about it? How did you price the company? And I'm not asking for any numbers.
1: Yeah, Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I think like the pricing is always a bit random. Like there are some benchmarks and there are some expectations on both sides, but it's like the end result of negotiation. In our case, with Ad search, we were in a good position that we received several offers. So we knew what the range is. There was no outliers in either end of the spectrum. So we knew quite well where we stand and that. Was what we expected as well, so there was no surprises in in pricing wise. Uh, in, in my experience, like if you aim to like a, like very very high price, it usually comes with like quite aggressive earnouts. And in our case, as the founders were not staying in the operational role, we didn't want to give the keys to operational people and just wish that the burnout will happen or something like that. So in our case, it, it was better to have a deal where the purchase price is quite fixed when the deal is closed. Uh, if the founder is willing to stay and, and really believes in the business, then like aggressive burnout can be good as well. And if the goals are met, then the purchase price can be much higher than with the fixed price. But of course, that is a big grind to do after the acquisition
0: yeah absolutely so um you know everything is done the deal is done uh and like you said you are not planning to stay in the operational role uh i know that there is something new already for you and i want to ask about that a little later but um post merger integration also a very hot topic right and um something that founders are a little bit afraid of maybe you know after the acquisition the words just don't really add up to to what they see, uh, to what is happening to the company to how the strategy is, uh, you know, carried on or not. Um, So how did the post integration go for you? Again, were there any um, unexpected turns? And um, if you know, if you're completely honest, would you change anything?
1: With SaaS group, it was uh, smooth as there was even like dedicated people running the post-acquisition merger, so it was very professionally ran and and smooth. Uh, but by smooth, I don't mean that it would haven't wouldn't have required work. So there was lots of stuff to do and and systems to integrate and and processes to to implement and so on. So lots of work, but I think everything was well documented and and we got help for everything from the SaaS group. So it was super professional and it was very clear that SAS Group is like professional buyer. So we were not the first and not the last company you we are buying. So it was well thought out. I've seen some other cases where the buyer hasn't bought like companies before or maybe have bought just a couple ones and then the, the, there hasn't been any merger processes. So it, it has been everything like ad hoc, like coming up with some, some merger ideas and, and trying them out. And obviously, the outcome is much more random. But with SARS Group, it has been great. Uh, also, I think like one thing that helps is that the culture fit was so good. Like we both are fully remote, so there was no offices to shut down or something like that. Uh, employees were or are around the world in both organizations. Uh, communication channels were similar, and all that. So, so there was so many things already kind of like matching that the merger was smooth.
0: Okay. That's great. That's again, that's just great to hear. All right. So uh, just a couple more questions, right? So, so far, looking back at Ad Search, uh, you've been working on it for 10 years. Uh, what has been the biggest win and the biggest failure?
1: I think the biggest win is the persistence. So we ran it for 10 years. We like we had a VC investor, but they invested like 500k when the company was founded. So we were basically bootstrapped in today's terms. Uh, and we ran it for 10 years. We went through the whole customer segment spectrum from like smallest one man companies to largest corporations in the world. Uh, and we, li- we kept listening for the customers, like what they, what they need and what are the, Requests and what's the direction for the product, and kept implementing that. And it took 10 years, but the end result is like a great company with great product and uh, customers who truly love us. So I think the persistence was the biggest win. Uh, biggest losses, difficult to say. Uh, maybe we got a bit. That started because of the legacy with the website builder business. So we aimed to two small companies in the beginning, and we kept turning down these big potential customers that kept knocking on our door. So we could have aimed to bigger customers from the early on, or at least like realized that and, and implemented the features that the bigger customers request a much much faster phase.
0: Okay. All right. But then again, you could turn it around, right? You are uh, now serving some of the biggest uh, corporations in the world. So not a loss, not a failure, a challenge, but a good learning. It was learning <laughs> Yes. Yeah. All right. Great. And uh, yeah, and obviously uh, the very important question. Um, over those 10 years, has there been a hack that worked for you or, you know, maybe you could share a hack about the acquisition, like how to find that cultural fit, how to find a pricing fit and just, you know, move on very smoothly and fast.
1: I wish there were simple hacks, but I don't think there are any like super <laughs> simple ones that help you out. So there's a couple of things that that has helped us. So the, well, as I mentioned, the persistence is the first one. A big part of startup success depends on the timing. So are you on the market at the right time? And and the only way to hedge the timing risk is to keep doing the thing for the long time. I think there's like a whole graveyard full of startups that were too early. The market just wasn't ready for the product. So that's, I don't know if it's a hack, but that's something that I would advise for everybody that, that if you believe in your product, keep doing it and keep, Pushing the market forward. The other thing that uh, not not a hack either, but helps many companies out is that that keep listening for the customers, but don't listen about the customer request or the solution that the customer is asking for, but but try to figure out what the customer problem actually is. Uh, because what happens is that I think nine times out of ten the customers ask for a feature, like, could we have this feature? And some companies even implement the features that customers are asking for. But what you should really do is to understand, like, why they need this feature? What is the problem that this feature would be solving? And in most cases, you might already have another feature that fills the need, or you can create a feature that fills the need plus 10 other problems. So never implement the features that the customers are asking, but but implement solutions for their problems.
0: That's a great one. OK, thank you so much, Antti. All right, and uh, as I mentioned, you know there is something already new and exciting that, that you're looking forward to. Uh, so what is it? Where are you going and uh, what are you planning to build if it's not a secret?
1: <laughs> it's a bit of a secret still, but I'm starting a new company. So I did some self-reflection last summer after after the exit and I was thinking what to do next. I think easy but a bit lazy solution would have been to go advising other companies and maybe keep doing angel investments that I have done done multiple already. Uh, But by heart, I'm a builder. So quite quickly, I became to a solution that I need to build something again and and, uh, starting a new company now in video streaming industry, so it's super fast growing and super interesting for me. There's one billion people watching live video streams uh, frequently and and on Twitch only there are eight million broadcasters, like active broadcasters, so the market is huge and all the new platforms are bringing live video on board like, you know, TikToks and Instagrams, but also LinkedIn lives and all that. So I'm doing something in the live video streaming industry, but not coming out with the product yet and uh still in building proof of concept and have some pilot customers lined up to to test the hypothesis in the near future and hopefully I can reveal more during the spring.
0: All right. Well, sign me up, you know. We're doing live streaming on LinkedIn, so <laughs> happy Absolutely. To test. Yes. Are you building it with an exit in mind already? Should we expect another Sorry? company or Are you building it with an exit in mind? Should we expect another company in our portfolio? Good question. (laughs) I
1: I've I've tried to go like product first, so I've been spending my energy on that proof of concept. And I actually I'm like technical person, so I'm coding by myself a lot and and building the product. And I haven't been thinking about the exit or the funding. So I'm not sure if this would be like VC driven case. Uh, It's definitely like the market is so big and growing and the product uh, idea is kind of like good enough for VC fit. But of course, VCs would bring some other pressure for timing and or timelines and, and such with them. So bootstrapping is another option and exit or not, I don't know, just focusing on great product and then great business and we'll see.
0: That's wonderful. Okay, Auntie, uh, well, I, I can't wait to uh, to try the new thing that you're working on. And like I said, we're super happy to have you and your incredible team on board. So thank you for being with us. And yeah, let's do this again um, when you have your new company up and running.
1: That would be awesome. Thank you, Anna.
0: Thank you so much for being here and take care. That was yet another awesome conversation on SaaS Unbound. We're always looking for new guests to share their experiences. We mostly talk with Bootstrapped SaaS founders, and if you're one, reach out to me directly at at anna.sas.group or find me on LinkedIn. If you're not Bootstrapped or even not SaaS but have a great story to tell, we want to hear from you too. And obviously, SaaS Unbound wouldn't be possible without the SaaS group, a founder-friendly private equity company that buys awesome businesses that people love to take them to even greater success. If you're thinking about selling your company or just exploring your options, feel free to visit saas.group, fill in the form, and expect a response in under 24 hours.